0: Are microplastics tumbling out of the atmosphere. The equivalent of 300 million plastic bottles fall out of the sky every year as microplastics. We know for sure that it is absolutely everywhere in the environment and in the home we know that there are lots of toxic things in plastics we need to reduce our reliance on them alternatives are going to help but we need to be very careful that we are not using things that are just as harmful the more we produce the more contaminated the environment becomes
1: welcome to the melanie avalon biohacking podcast where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health mindset longevity and so much more are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life, this show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do it. Welcome back
2: to the Melanie Avalon biohacking podcast. Oh my goodness, friends. I have been so eager to air today's episode. If you're anything like me, it is going to change your entire perspective on the world. Once you learn all this information, you just can't unsee it. Matt Simons, a poison like none other is mind blowing. You would not believe how prevalent microplastics are in our environment, our nature, our bodies, so many things. It is such a problem. You'll learn where microplastics are everywhere from Mount Everest to the bottom of the oceans to all in your clothes. We talk about the toxicity potential of plastics, whether or not we will actually evolve to tolerate plastics. That was a cool thing to talk about, as well as some of the greenwashing and myths surrounding things like biodegradables, bioplastics, and recycling. Oh dear, prepare yourself for a whole new perspective. I cannot wait to hear what you guys think. And by the way, after listening, I felt so much better about using my hold on bags. I asked Matt about Hold On in this episode, and then I did more research afterwards, and I feel so good about them. Listen to the ad in today's show to learn more about them, but they are plant-based bags that can replace your single-use plastics all over your home, which is a major, major problem. I am obsessed with them. I'm using the garbage bags. I really, really love the gallon bags and the liter bags. In particular, Matt talks about the problem of putting plastic in the freezer. Now I'm finally able to easily store my meat, which I often stock up on, in the freezer in non-plastic solutions. I love these bags, and you can get 20% off. Just go to holdonbagscom Melanie Avalon and use the code Melanie Avalon at checkout for 20% off your order. And again, there will be more details in the ad that runs in today's show, so definitely listen to that. The show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.comslash plastic. Those show notes will have a full transcript, so definitely check that out. There will be two episode giveaways for this episode. One will be in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting Plus Real Foods Plus Life comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something that I love and then check out my Instagram find the Friday announcement post and again comment there to enter to win something that I love if you're enjoying the show it would mean the absolute world 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 if you could take a moment and write a brief review on Apple podcasts it helps so much more than most people realize so thank you so much in advance for that I have a very exciting announcement friends I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content, tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male centric or focused on a certain type of person. And I just want to break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon Official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it. So please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. Okay friends, spirulina update, it is still coming. I know it's been taking a while, it's just because I want to make the most ideal spirulina tablets on the market, ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that spirulina source, it tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you are currently taking spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, they are not one ingredient, there is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or LGE, and I really experience the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some seropeptides. You can get 10% off with the coupon code Melanie Avalon, as well as a 20% off code when you text Avalon X to 877-861-8318. That's Avalon X to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MD logic health for that go to melanieavaloncom avalon.com And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts. And friends get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon. So you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. With the subscriptions, by the way, I'm going to be implementing some pretty cool features. So I need to do subscriptions to help support that. So like I said, get it now. Before we change to subscriptions, you can get it at melanieavalon.com slash foodsenseguide. And one more thing before we jump in. Did you know there are over a thousand compounds found in conventional skincare and makeup in the U S that have been banned in Europe due to their toxicity. If you are using conventional skincare makeup, you are directly putting into your bloodstream toxic compounds, including obesogens, which can literally cause your body to store and gain weight. So if your diet's not working, you might want to think about what's happening with your skincare makeup, as well as carcinogens linked to cancer. I'm not making this up and just endocrine disruptors in general, which with our hormones thankfully there's an easy solution to this there's a company called beauty counter and they were founded on a mission to change this every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin so you can truly feel good about what you put on and their products really work i am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel their vitamin C serum. They have shampoo and conditioner skincare lines for every skin type and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all beauty counter makeup when she hosted the golden globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code clean for all 20 to get 20% off site-wide. You can get the latest updates from me, specials, sales, samples, and so much more on my email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash clean And you can join me in my Facebook group, clean beauty and safe skincare with Melanie Avalon. People share product reviews and their experiences. And I do a giveaway every single week in that group as well. And lastly, if you're thinking of making clean beauty and safe skincare a part of your future, like I have, I definitely recommend becoming a Band of Beauty member. It's sort of like the Amazon Prime for clean beauty. You get 10% back in product credit, free shipping on qualifying orders, and a welcome gift that is worth way more than the price of the year-long membership. It is totally, completely worth it. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited about the conversation that I am about to have. So backstory on today's conversation. It's sort of the definition of small world. I was introduced to today's guest through another podcast guest that I've had on the show, John Levy, who I Really recommend his book and his work. He's amazing. And he does something called the Influencers Dinner where he invites really cool people to meet each other. And he basically knows anybody and everybody. And he always throws the most incredible guests my way. So he introduced me to Matt Simon, who is a science journalist at Wired Magazine, who has a few books, including a new book that we're going to talk about on this show. But it was such a small world because it turns out that Matt sits. Well, when he is in the office, like we were talking about, but when he's in the office, he sits right next to one of my best friends from college, which is just crazy. So that was an exciting moment. But in any case, his newest book is called A Poison Like No Other How Microplastics Corrupted Our Planet and Our Bodies. Friends, if you read this book, or maybe I guess after listening to this interview, I will just say that this book book has completely changed my perception of the world. And I I mean that like literally. I see things differently than I did before. I I knew the plastic issues was a problem. I was trying to help the situation by doing things like buying BPA-free, which I'm sure we're going to talk about, or really cleaning up my skincare and makeup and getting rid of phthalates and things like that. But I don't think I was really thinking about it, and I didn't understand the entire implications, and I definitely didn't understand what actually feasibly needs to happen or what can be done. So I'm really excited about this conversation. I think it's going to open a lot of people's eyes. I have a lot of questions. Matt, thank you so much for being here.
0: And thank you for having me.
2: I just have to tell you really quickly, I think one of the saddest moments reading your book for me was when I realized that one of my favorite things in life, which is glitter— it's like just plastic. <laughs> like I'm just throwing plastic everywhere.
0: It's the ultimate microplastic. It is, yeah, it's fun. I don't want to detract from the entertainment of glitter, but it is plastic and it is particularly good at getting into all sorts of nooks and crannies. And I think it's actually quite a good representation of the problem of microplastics at large, as this stuff can get absolutely everywhere as glitter can in your home if it's escaping from a, a greeting card or something like that.
2: Actually, it's a really good metaphor too, because it seems so wonderful and happy and does so many great things for us, but a little bit sinister. Okay. So before, before we get into all of this, I am super curious. Did somebody bring this idea to you? Were you already interested in this? Are you... An environmentalist, like, What's your backstory? Well, in general, because you also have two other books right? that we were just talking about before this. You have The Wasp That Brainwashed the Caterpillar, Evolution's Most Unbelievable Solutions to Life's Biggest Problems, and also Plight of the Living Dead, What Real-Life Zombies Reveal About Our World and Ourselves, which is about parasites mind-controlling their hosts. So I really want to read both of these books. What made you so interested in everything that you're doing and ultimately to write this book about plastics?
0: Sure. So I have been writing at Wired for a dozen years now, and I have been generally interested in obviously science, being a science journalist. So my previous two books, as you mentioned, were more about biology, animals basically doing weird things to each other and the weird inventions that evolution has come up with to to fix life's problems. But in recent years, I have been reporting more and more on microplastic pollution, which is a very new science, actually. So really has been in the past couple of years that we've gotten a lot more studies on the extent of microplastic pollution. So in recent years, there have been you know quantifications of how much of it's in the atmosphere. For example, there was a, a paper that came out and got quite a bit of press, including from us a couple of years ago, finding a lot of microplastics in baby poop, which is terrifying and we know exactly how that's getting into babies and it's it's scary in and of itself. But as these studies have been trickling out, I had been reporting on them for Wired and realized that nobody had really done kind of a cohesive treatment of the state of microplastic science, which is what I set out to do here. So I, I read through lots and lots of papers, spoke to over 100 microplastic scientists for the book and then kind of gathered up the state of the science, what we know about microplastics, what we don't know. We know for sure that it is absolutely everywhere in the environment and in the home. The next frontier is is the consequences. What does that mean for ecosystems and for human health in particular?
2: Two questions right off the bat about that. One, so because you said you've been writing about it at Wired for a while, was there a moment where you like read some headline study and got interested? Or was it just a slow, like, was there an inciting incident that made you interested?
0: I think the same with how a lot of people come into microplastics is that you hear about it and you think oh that doesn't sound particularly good <laughs> plastics uh, that are micro that could be problematic i had been you know it wasn't really a defining moment for me i had just started realizing it during the pandemic actually i was sitting around with not a lot to do during lockdown i thought Here's a great idea to to make myself feel worse about the state of the world. Why don't I do a book length treatment of the state of microplastic science? So there wasn't really a, a defining moment. It was a, a sort of slow realization that this is a massive problem and a, a really exploding field in science because there you can talk to a lot of microplastics researchers who will tell you that I did not set out to do this. I was a biologist or I was a geologist and I was finding all this stuff out in the environment and started wondering about the implications and that's how I got into being a a microplastics researcher. It's drawing in so many people from all these different disciplines because the stuff is everywhere in the environment, everywhere scientists look. I'm not exaggerating when I say absolutely everywhere. That has drawn in just a wide swath of people across the scientific spectrum to create, I think, this really interesting and burgeoning field.
2: Yeah, that really blew my mind, the part about the extreme environments even that it's in and that there's even microplastics on the top of Mount Everest, which is just mind-blowing. You provide so many stats in the book about prevalence and the amount of these in the environment. So I'd love to hear what some of those are. But in addition to that, how do scientists quantify that? Like, how do we know like how many tons of these there are in the oceans and, and different areas?
0: It's a great question. And it's because it's a burgeoning field, they're actually still standardizing the methodology for both collecting microplastics in the environment and for analyzing them in the lab. So you can go to, say, the Pacific Ocean, and two scientific teams can pull up, you know, basically the same liter of water, but they will oftentimes put it through different filters of different fineness. So if your net is finer, you can actually count more microplastics as you're getting some of the smaller stuff. So it makes it a little bit difficult in these early days of the field to compare quantifications of microplastics in a given medium. But but those, those methodologies are coalescing and what we're finding is increasing agreement among studies about the total saturation of microplastics in the environment. So I think a, a good one to talk about, and you mentioned microplastics getting up to Mount Everest, that isn't necessarily and it, this might be a contribution, it isn't necessarily that people are walking around up there shedding microfibers from their synthetic clothing, which is made out of plastic. It is more because this stuff is all over the atmosphere. So there was one quantification a year or two ago, and I actually visited this scientist in the book and talk about it in the introduction. She has these instruments on top of remote mountains in the in the western United States and she collects what's falling out of the sky. We're calling it plastic. Rain, essentially. There are microplastics tumbling out of the atmosphere. And by collecting them in these catchers out on these remote mountaintops, she calculated that in just 6% of the United States in these Western protected areas, the equivalent of 300 million plastic bottles fall out of the sky every year as microplastic. So to scale that up much bigger uh, across the United States, we're talking about the equivalent of billions of plastic bottles falling out of the sky as a microplastic each year. That's how much of the stuff is up in the atmosphere. And because it's up there, it can then swirl around the entire planet. It is falling on remote rainforests in South America. It's falling in Antarctica. It's also in the oceans. It's swirling around there. Scientists have been showing recently that it actually can blow out of the ocean and come on shore in sea breezes. The, The extent of the problem has not really been realized until recently. But because we have more of these studies, now we're seeing... Wow, we we are dealing with a just near total contamination of the environment with microplastics, and we haven't even talked about nanoplastics yet. So, microplastics are defined as bits smaller than five millimeters. Nanoplastics are much much smaller; they're smaller than a micrometer, which is a millionth of a meter. There are way more of those. In the environment than there are microplastics, but it's still very difficult and expensive to detect nanoplastics. So I I try to drive this home point in the book as often as I can, is that whenever you hear a quantification of microplastics in the environment, it's almost certainly a significant undercount because there are just a lot more of these nanoplastics out there than they are microplastics. Something to keep in mind going forward as as people maybe get interested in, in microplastics is just basically considered the worst, unfortunately, because there are limits to what scientists can actually detect in the environment.
2: So the microplastics being five millimeters. So you can, you can see that, right? You can see some of them.
0: Yeah, I think a good way. To, yeah, a good thing of way to think about. Less than five millimeters is about the width of a pencil eraser. So that's obviously visible with the human eye. So you can actually, in the home, one of the major contributions to microplastic contamination is microfibers from things like polyester and nylon. We we wear. A lot of that stuff, obviously, and that that breaks off and flies around indoor air. So if you look through a window, through sunshine coming through window, you can actually see these things floating in the air. So but then they get obviously they get much smaller, anywhere between five millimeters down to micrometers, millionths of a meter. There's this is a whole spectrum. And like a piece of plastic can be five point one millimeters. It's basically a microplastics, but because we have to 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 standardize what a microplastic is. It's not technically considered a microplastic. It's a a bit of a gray area. But yes, you can see them with the naked eye, but a lot of them we really can't. And and those are are significantly higher quantities in the environment.
2: Can we actually step back? Because you tell the history of plastics in the book and the really interesting relation to billiard balls. So what's the history of the formation of plastics? why do we have them now
0: it's a it's a interesting and tragic story so you have mentioned billiard balls this began in the late 1800s when people were playing more and more billiards those Balls were made out of ivory from elephants, so that was obviously a finite resource. And this very famous billiards player put out a call for submissions for people to think up to invent a synthetic alternative to ivory to make billiard balls out of. And that was what led to the first mass producible plastic toward the end of the 1800s. Because of that, that just this one guy had this idea in his head that that first plastic just proliferated into a just insane number of different plastics over the following decades. And it it really was in World War II where people started replacing more natural fibers, for instance, like cotton with nylon because there were supply shortages. And that then started increasing exponentially after World War II, the production of that. And we have had since then, almost a century now, an increasing exponential production of plastics. And as that happens in the environment, scientists can look back and, you know, sediment samples back to the 1940s and 50s and beyond, and I can actually plot the increasing concentration of microplastic in the environment in lockstep with that exponential increase in plastic production. So the more we produce, the more contaminated the environment becomes, which I do not think this billiards player had in mind when he put out that call for submissions.
2: I have so many questions about that. Yeah, one is that, I mean, I mentioned this even with the glitter. I did not realize, I can't emphasize this enough, how much I didn't realize what all is plastic. Like, I think I had such a finite view of what plastic was. Like, I would have just, I would have, like, come in my apartment. If you were, like, point at the plastic, I would have, like, pointed at certain specific things. Like, I didn't realize it's almost in everything, it seems. Like, clothing is two-thirds, I think you said. Two-thirds of clothing is plastic, of conventional clothing.
0: Yep, yep, two-thirds, which I don't think very many people actually realize. You go buy a... Uh, yeah buy a shirt, having no idea that polyester or nylon that's a that's a plastic it's a very soft plastic, but it has a lot of these really great properties admittedly it you know it can waterproof and fleece, for instance is, is super worn everybody loves fleece it's made out of synthetic fibers though the the issue is that while two thirds of clothing is now made out of synthetic fibers, we have a lot of natural fibers like what we think is a pure cotton or pure wool garment is actually now coated in plastic polymers to make it like fireproof or, or waterproof. So these sneaky ways that that plastics have really infiltrated Every aspect of our lives. And when you think about carpeting in the home, obviously made out of synthetic fibers, but also hardwood flooring. So if you have vinyl flooring or laminate or something like that, that's made out of plastic. There has been at least one study that has showed that in homes with that hardwood, you do get little bits breaking off and entering the indoor air. So all around us, beyond the, you know, the bags and the bottles, the obvious plastics, there are these sneaky ways that, that plastics have gotten to every aspect of our lives.
2: Like, I didn't even realize, because I talk about phthalates all the time because I'm very passionate about safe skincare and makeup, and phthalates are plastic, right? Or partly?
0: Phthalates are a major component of plastic. So, phthalates are a, a broad group of chemicals that help make plastic plastic. So, At the very base of it, a plastic is just repeating chains of carbon. So fossil fuel companies will extract that carbon, obviously, from the environment, from the ground. Natural gas and oil becomes plastic. That's the base layer of those carbon chains. But to make a plastic a plastic, to make it lighter, to make it tougher, to make it melt-proof, that sort of thing, they have to add all sorts of additional chemicals, phthalates included. The issue is that these plastics companies do not tell us what is in these plastics. There's no ingredient list for a plastic bottle. So what chemists actually have to do is reverse engineer these plastics in the lab. And they have found that there have been at least 10,500 chemicals used in plastics. A quarter of those chemicals are considered to be of concern, meaning they're either known to be toxic or they're persistent in the environment. So phthalates is is one of these major groups that is a thing very specific to plastic. And there was a study that came out a couple of years ago, and we're going to see actually more of these kinds of studies going forward, that is linking phthalates to human health problems. So they calculated by looking at phthalate levels in the blood of people that on a very conservative estimate, phthalates are responsible for 100,000 premature deaths in the United States each year. Phthalates are coming from plastics. That's the source of it. And I think in the next couple of years, maybe five years or so, we're gonna see more of these studies that are linking plastics to human health problems. And Now we have to consider, okay, where is that coming from? Is that because we're drinking from plastic bottles? Is that because our food is wrapped in plastic? Or is there also a contribution from microplastics? Because we are inhaling little tiny bits of plastic. And are these chemicals getting into our bloodstream that way? So phthalates are are just one of a number of endocrine disrupting chemicals, which I'm sure you've touched on before. These are really terrible chemicals that make our hormone system go haywire. So we will see, I think, again, going forward in the next couple of years, more of these studies coming out. This is the urgency, I think, is that we don't need to wait for that. We know that there are lots of toxic things in plastics. We need to reduce our reliance on them, reduce our exposure, because we know for sure a lot of these chemicals are terrible for human health.
2: You're talking about how there's no overview or regulation and we don't know what's actually in these different plastics. How does that compare to other industries? Is that the way it is with all industries of like textile materials and different materials or just plastics where there's not regulation.
0: Yeah, unfortunately, in the United States, we just don't have a very robust framework for testing of of chemicals before they enter the market. Uh, You're actually seeing much more movement on this in the European Union. They're much stricter about what chemicals can get banned. But the billiards player who put out the call for for an alternative to elephant ivory and billiards never assumed that we would eventually be inhaling little bits of plastic years down the line car tires are another major one car tires are made out of synthetic rubber that's a synthetic plastic Uh, little bits break off and into the environment we inhale them when we're walking down the road because they're getting kicked up into the air Tire manufacturers, I don't think, ever assumed that we would be ingesting their tires. That is not food-safe plastic. So there isn't really this regulatory framework that we need to phase out these specific chemicals that we know to be terrible. Because the, you know, you again, ten thousand different chemicals in plastics. At least, which one? Which one is going to be bad for human health? It's probably going to be a bunch of them uh, at the same time. But then we have to think about, well, what about every other organism on this planet that is now exposed to microplastics because this stuff is so pervasive in the environment? What might be okay for the human body might not be for some small crustacean that's part of a very important food web in the ocean. So this is why there's a lot of problems also with thinking about alternatives to plastic is that we need to test the toxicity of these things Against all sorts of different organisms, because this stuff is going to get out in the environment, is going to break into little tiny pieces. That's the challenge here. It's, it's very daunting, and I, I don't imagine that's a very hopeful answer for you all. But this is why we need to pressure governments to to be stronger in their in their regulation of plastics, as we're realizing more and more the plastic is just it's it's toxic, it's terrible, and we need to figure out to what extent it is impacting human health. But the early studies are 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 pretty alarming, I think.
2: You talk in the book about how, in addition to the actual potential toxicity of the plastic itself, other pollutants can come with it or heavy metals or things in the atmosphere and it can usher that in as well. So, I mean, it just seems like such a problem. So, you talk about how I think you said urban environments are actually, well, how does it compare rural versus urban? I thought it was a little bit counterintuitive, the concentrations, because you talked about like things being trapped buildings and there was more plastics maybe in rural areas.
0: It is counterintuitive. Yeah. It, but it's, I think it's actually rather fascinating and kind of a, a morbid way, really. So when we're talking about urban areas in, in dense cities, we have a lot of microplastic production from from roads, right? So cars are driving around lots in cities, brake pads are wearing off as cars are in bumper to bumper traffic. But atmospheric modeling is actually showing that cities tend to hold on to a lot of those microplastics because there's not a lot of wind being able to whip through a downtown area, for example, compared to a rural environment. If you have a road that's exposed, there are a lot more winds coming in and and taking up those higher market plastics in particular into the atmosphere. Uh, This is a a good time, I think, to to talk about sludge, which is a, a not particularly nice term for a very gross product. So when we do laundry, we wash our synthetic clothing, these little fibers break off, perhaps millions of them in a single load of of laundry and flow out to a wastewater treatment facility where that water is treated. And those microfibers actually mix with human waste and are sequestered into something called sludge. And this is human waste that is then taken and spread on fields as fertilizer. So we are actually seeing that about 90% of the microplastics that flow to a wastewater treatment facility are sequestered in sludge and then spread on fields. There was one calculation that it's something like a billion pounds Of microplastics spread in Europe each year on fields just from our clothing. The remaining 10% at the wastewater treatment facility is pumped out to sea in the relatively clean water. And that is a big reason why the seas are quite contaminated with microplastics. So when we are thinking about rural areas, people in cities with higher population densities are sending their sludge to these fields to be spread as fertilizer. That is applying a concentrated microplastic to fields. And there is some evidence showing that it's being taken up into crops through the roots these particles are quite small and are, are capable of doing that. But then in these rural areas, you get these high winds. If a field dries out and those microplastics take to the sky, they can actually be propelled quite high into the atmosphere and then carried perhaps thousands of miles. And in addition when you are thinking about rural highways, roads, that sort of thing, cars are driving much faster than they are in a city center. So if you're going 70, 75 miles an hour, you're providing much more energy to fire those tire microplastics into the atmosphere. And and that's why cities tend to hold on to, presumably, this is what the modeling is showing, tend to hold on to more of their microplastics, whereas it's just coming off of the the landscape in these rural areas and taking to the sky, in addition to the stuff that is falling back out of the atmosphere, as that researcher I mentioned has been calculating in, in Western areas. So there's this extremely complicated microplastic cycle that's now coming into view, how it's moving between these different mediums, between the land and the air and the ocean, it is doing so quite readily. And that's why everything is so contaminated is because these things are tiny, they're light, they very easily take to the air and, and nowhere is is untouched. You'll ask any microplastic scientists, is there anywhere that's clean? And they say, no, no, everywhere. Absolutely everywhere is contaminated.
2: Hi friends. I seriously had the time of my life last year and I would love to hang out with you guys and you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. That is so, so crazy.
0: Sorry. Yeah, I wish I had better news for you.
2: <laughs> no, I know. I know. Oh, It's funny. I sent because my assistant helps me with prep for the show. And so she was reading my notes and she was... I don't remember exactly what she said, but her comment was just like, well, like, oh no, I don't know how I feel now. So I thought that was so interesting though. So the plastics actually work as a fertilizer. They actually help the plants grow.
0: It's an unintentional byproduct of sludge. So what's helping the plants grow is is... Weird to think about, but it's our it's our human waste. It's it's used as fertilizer from our urine and feces. That's spread on. It's disinfected as best they can first, and then spread on on fields that way. Microplastics are just accidentally in there. But there's just there's not very much research on what that actually means for crops, but also soils. There have been a few studies that have showed that the more that you increase the concentration of microplastics in soils, the more you change the property. So sometimes it actually absorbs less water or lets go of more water to evaporate away, which could have implications for for growing crops. Um, it also harms all sorts of critters in the soil. There's good research showing that when earthworms ingest microplastics. They eat less regular food, their mortality is higher, their reproduction goes down. This is a, coming back to this idea that there are at least 10,000 different chemicals that have been used in plastics. Any one of those can be harmful to an earthworm. Probably several at the same time. We just need more research on, Well, oh my God, if every organism is, is corrupted in its own ways and ingesting these things, what's going to be harmful for one but not another?
2: I did not realize that that's how conventional agriculture fertilized stuff. I just didn't know that.
0: Yeah, it's it's gross. It's gross and it's weird and it's very widespread. And it's a billion pounds of microplastics applied to fields in Europe each year. It's a little bit less in North America and the United States and Canada, just because it's it, we have a little bit less agriculture here than they do across the entire European Union. But it is... Wow, it is, it's a lot. It's close to a billion pounds here. It's just—it's hard to fathom. And this is also accumulating in those soils. There have been a couple of ex- experiments that have actually looked back for many, many years and have shown that the more microplastics applied to a soil in a given year, the more that stick around in that soil. So it's—it's it's gathering, it's accumulating year after year, and that could have detrimental effects on our crops going forward.
2: Before leaving the, the urban and the cars and all of that stuff. So you do talk about the implications of things like, so solutions like magnets under cars that gather plastics or electric cars, both of those options, what would happen there?
0: Yeah, it's a neat little piece of technology, still in development. There's a, a group called the Tire Collective that is developing really, the sort of attachment that goes behind a car tire and uses basically the the static electricity that's generated from the friction of the tire to gather up microplastics as they're they're flying off of that synthetic rubber before the stuff has a chance to hit. The road, which is neat. I mean, it would require getting these on on lots and lots of cars because this is like every car and truck on the road is is spewing microplastics lots and lots of them year over year there are other farther downstream things that we could do for roads so i'm a huge proponent of something called a, a rain garden this is a little green space you might have seen in, in a city next to a road where there's some plants growing perhaps this is is predominantly used to gather rainwater and and reduce flooding in an urban area but there was a, a study that showed that this actually has the added benefit of capturing over ninety percent of microplastics in rainwater coming off of roads, so these have multiple benefits. You green up a, an urban area, you reduce flooding, and, and at the same time you you kind of capture these microplastics before they 're able to flow out to a body of water. So there are these like these small solutions that we I think can add up to something quite substantial to reduce the amount of microplastics going into the environment. But there are just so many ways for this stuff to get out there that it is going to be very difficult to turn down the tap of microplastics flowing into the environment.
2: Speaking to that timeline and just the actual reality of everything. So, cause we're talking about gathering up these plastics. We haven't even talked about recycling yet. I guess what I'm trying to ask is, so if we stopped right now and we didn't create any more plastic, is the plastic just here indefinitely? Like, is the only option to recycle it into new plastic or can we actually get rid of any of it? Is that even a possibility? Can we like launch it into space?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Could fire into the sun? Yeah. Unfortunately, the microplastic that's out in the environment is out there forever. There's just no way for us to drag some sort of magnet through the ocean to collect the microplastics there, it's it's impossible. It will, I think, settle in ocean sediments, but I think for a very long time, it, even if we stopped producing plastic, even if somehow we kept are clothes from shedding fibers that flow out to the ocean or are put onto fields as sludge, this stuff will be circulating in the atmosphere for quite some time. And this is not even considering the fact that any macroplastics, so macro a macroplastic being a big thing like a bottle or a bag, that's really just pre microplastics so as it's in the environment it's breaking into smaller and smaller bits so all the big stuff that's out there as well is going to break into microplastics over time and we just have such a unmitigated flow of both macro and microplastics into the environment that it's going to be very difficult to stop in a perfect world if we somehow did like if we stopped using plastics Entirely. Yes, the concentrations, I think, would, would go down in the environment as it was sequestered in, in sediments and things like that. Uh, I don't know how long that would take. This is, I think, the, the ultimate urgency is that we are up against a plastics industry that will happily triple production by 2050. That's, that's the, the projection here. And that will triple the amount of microplastic going into the environment. We do not have time to to get to that we, uh, that's an insane thing to think about we're producing a trillion pounds of plastic a year which is a wildly high number for any sort of material especially plastic when you consider that plastic is very light think about how much plastic would make up a trillion a trillion pounds that is current levels in 2022, that will triple by 2050, unless we get something like a plastics treaty, which is in negotiations as we speak, to, to severely curtail the production of, of plastic. That's the only thing that's going to, to stop this problem. The industry will scream from the rooftops for the rest of its days that we just need to recycle more, that was never going to work. Unfortunately, there's a bunch of problems with recycling. That's not going to save us here. Microplastics scientists will tell you across the board the only way to stop this is to stop producing so much plastic.
2: So the efforts that are in place, like this discussion that you're talking about to curtail plastics, how are plastics framed? Is the, the main issue... The effect on humans or the effect on the environment—it's
0: everything. And this—I mean—and so, this is, I think, why I have a good amount of hope for something like a plastics treaty, and, and just kind of generally the momentum that is behind this drive to use less plastic. So it is both microplastics researchers saying, "Hey, folks, this is absolutely everywhere in the environment. We are already finding." effects on organisms so for instance in Washington state in recent decades there have been mass die offs of salmon in rivers up there and scientists had no idea why until a couple of years ago when they isolated a particular chemical from tire particles these microplastics coming off of cars that kills these salmon en masse so we have that what like that's one species that we have documented harm with there have been additional follow up studies that found two more species of fish are, are are susceptible to this chemical so it's probably killing much more fish than we already realize but in these i think more subtle ways and like in the open ocean you have these little organisms called plankton that are the very base of the oceanic food web they're just the right size to eat these things to mistake microplastics for actual food and they're filling up their stomachs with this obviously indigestible material that is both leaching chemicals into its body, but also obstructing its digestive system. And there's good research showing that this is actually decreasing their appetite for actual food, which could have massive implications running up and down the food web. So when I mentioned earlier that this field is is growing rapidly because so many different scientists from other fields are actually being drawn into it, it's because nowhere on the planet is untouched and these are the consequences that i think are driving a lot of the recent movement to put severe curtailments on the production of plastic that is again the only way that we're going to stop this crisis and we haven't as much talked yet about the the human health aspects here it's that's the like we also have People who work with EDCs, these endocrine disrupting chemicals, saying this is bad. We cannot be surrounding our stuff. We cannot be surrounding ourselves with this material because it is packed with chemicals we know to be really terrible for human health, even in very small doses, perhaps like you would get by inhaling microplastics. So I think the movement is is broad. It's gaining momentum for something like a plastics treaty, but we're up against petrochemical companies, which are the most powerful and rich corporations on the planet who have a legal obligation to their shareholders to maximize their profits, which means producing more and more plastics. So they are essentially legally obligated to destroy this planet. That's that's criminal. It's absurd. And it is something that is going to take a lot of ground swelling. So from Individual consumers, maybe donating time or money to anti-plastics groups. The only way we're going to see movement on this in the United States, at least, is to wrench our politicians away from the influence of these petrochemical companies. They are, they are very much funded by groups like Exxon and any number of petrochemical companies. Our government is captured by oil gas and oil interests. These are the same people that are going to switch as we decarbonize our economy from producing fossil fuels as fuels to producing more fossil fuels to go into plastics. That's the sneaky thing that they're already doing here. Is they see the writing on the wall. We're going to switch to green technologies. We cannot let it be that they switch to producing more plastics because that comes with its own climate implications. There was one calculation that By 2050, the growth in the plastics industry could mean that we're adding 600 coal-fired power plants worth of emissions to the atmosphere. Because these are, again, fossil fuels. So we are going to see movement on the human health side, I think, but also from the climate side. Climate scientists are also very interested in the, the contribution of plastics to the problem. And I think once we realize as a society that we cannot let the petrochemical industry bamboozle us again into thinking that something like plastic is is easily recyclable. It's it's our fault as consumers that the, the environment has become so saturated with plastics. We cannot let that happen again with, with microplastics. This is not a problem of you wearing yoga pants or a, a nice weatherproof jacket that's made out of plastic. That is not your fault because not a lot of people realize that was plastic. This is on the industry. And that's who we need to hold accountable for this.
2: When do we start realizing that this was an issue?
0: This is kind of the tragic thing, I think, about it. So one of the first papers on microplastics came out in the early 70s. And I, I talked to this this researcher who's still doing science here in 2022. I talked to him for the book and he described to me what it was like as a, an oceanographer. So he found nurdles on the open ocean. So nurdles are these little pellets that are about the size of, of lentils. These are the raw materials that are melted down into plastic bottles and bags, that sort of thing. They are shipped all over the world and lost along those supply chains in incredible numbers. They leak very easily into the environment. So he was out in the open ocean, pulling up nets full of of plankton, supposed to be just animals, and finding these, these little pellets way off of the eastern coast of the United States. So he wrote up those findings and published it in the journal science this big prestigious journal and he we talk about this in the book he says that he was visited by somebody from the plastics industry who did not take too kindly to this research he did a follow up study a couple of years later that found them these nurdles in fish close, closer in fish stomach closer to the east coast he was he told me that it, it was basically like if you and I had swallowed a, a bowling ball that's that's the obstruction that this is creating in those organisms. So after that, unfortunately, there, were, there was just kind of a smattering of studies here and there. But the focus really shifted to macroplastics. So keeping bottles and bags from getting into the environment, which is all well and good. We should most certainly be doing that. But as those decades went on, the microplastics problem got worse and worse. And, and very few people were actually noticing until like the word... Microplastic, the term, the scientific definition, wasn't termed until 2004. That is a long time. That is, you know, 30 years that we were not fully realizing the extent of microplastic pollution in the environment. But since 2004, almost 20 years now, we have been getting much more studies as again, a lot of people from different fields are kind of just tumbling into microplastic science by accident. So the body of evidence is growing. Again, we are, we're, we got a good grasp on where it is in the environment and in what concentrations. Now more of the focus is turning to the consequences for all those organisms out there, plants and animals, but also for humans who are exposed to a lot of microplastic in the home in particular
2: speaking to the effect on the species and like you said, how it's like us swallowing a bowling ball. Have you seen or have any species had any evolutionary adaptions to plastic or could they in theory? Or is it a poison like no other, like there's no adaption?
0: It's it's actually a fantastic question and something that I was thinking about while writing the book, but did not put anything in there about it. This is something that the scientists are thinking about. So if you know, let's let's take a, a a crustacean, like a little tiny crustacean, plankton floating around on the open ocean. It's like five millimeters long, which is about the size you know, the, the upper limit of what a microplastic can be. It ingests that microplastic let's talk very theoretically here so very theoretically you could have an organism that ingests that fine like maybe it has some sort of genetic mutation that allows it to power through you know a particular chemical in that plastic that would poison one of its peers and then it survives and it passes down those genes that adapt it to ingesting microplastics is that theoretically possible Maybe, I, I I don't know. It was something I was thinking about or writing the book and it's something that scientists are thinking about. What we have actually been seeing is on the microorganism scale. So you had mentioned earlier that you know we are finding that these plastics accumulate things in the environment. This is actually something called the plastosphere. These are very fascinating communities of microorganisms that actually gather on these little tiny particles of plastic. You can get a scanning electron microscope, which does these beautiful, very close-up pictures of these these communities, and it's bustling. There's all kinds of things on this plastic, and they are finding that some of these appear to be bacteria that are Kind of digging holes into the surface of the plastic. They might be in some way digesting the plastic. Maybe that helps this certain kind of bacteria, but it's not a Good thing, like we. Let's, I just want to be clear: we cannot rely on this bacteria to clear microplastics out of the environment. And this is something I get angry about. You hear, I, at least I get pitched a lot as a science journalist about these alternatives. That oh, we're gonna we can we found this microorganism or this enzyme that can digest plastic. Well, what are you gonna do? Release it in massive quantities into the environment and screw up all sorts of microbial communities? No. But this is it's a great question. It's a, it's a very interesting idea that because. Because every organism essentially is, is exposed to mycoplastic. Might there be some of them that develop resistance to the poisons within those plastics?
2: anti-aging, help with your stress, help with lack of sleep, and or optimize your partying. You need these patches, friends. And I'm so excited because working with the company has been amazing and they are giving you guys $100 off, which is incredible. So to get that discount, just go to melanieavalon.com slash ion layer. That's I O N L A Y E R and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to get $100 off your first order. I cannot recommend these enough. I'm going to use them for the unforeseeable future, probably for the rest of my life. It's literally just become part of my arsenal now. Like when I'm getting ready to go out, usually once a week, put on my NAD patch. And even if I don't go out that week, I still like to do one once weekly. Oh, P.S. They're also amazing for traveling. You guys know I'm not a big traveler. I've been doing more traveling recently and I wear these on the plane there and back. Game changer. Although it's really fun at TSA, especially because I already opt out and don't go through the scanner code Melanie Avalon for $100 off. It's so interesting because you could almost, I mean, if you just want to just brainstorm and think about crazy ideas, I mean, you could imagine a situation where looking at millions of years, assuming we're still here, there's some other species that evolves to adapt to all of these environmental pollutants. And so, you know, and then humans don't. And so like humans get wiped out and this other species actually evolves and like in millions of years, there's a different, like it looks completely different.
0: Yeah, yeah. Plastic resistance in some sort of species. I think one of the truly embarrassing and devastating things about microplastic pollution is that it's going to be an artifact. It's It's in the fossil record. So as I had mentioned, scientists can go into... In the sediments of in the ocean and dig down through these layers and go back to the 1940s and chart over time the exponential increase in the amount of microplastics over the decades. So, you know, our descendants say 500 years if we if we make it that long down the line will go back through the fossil record and find this truly astonishing and embarrassing signal of microplastics infesting the fossil record. There should be organisms in there. Now it's synthetic particles of plastic. That's that's what I find upsetting is, is the record that we're leaving for those that come after us is, is ugly. And it's, it's devastating, I think.
2: One of the things that bothers me is stuff like There's so much unnecessary plastic, in my opinion. Like, I eat a lot of cucumbers, like a lot, and I buy them in bulk at Costco, and there's so much plastic wrapped around them, you know, like in the actual cucumbers, and then there's like the plastic layer around that. I was always just concerned historically before reading your book about the plastic touching the cucumber and then somehow leaching into the cucumber and having that effect. But now it seems like it could be so much more than that. So actually, first, really quick question. So like when plastics touch food, like because there's lots of like wrapped produce and stuff like that, and even meats at the grocery store, does that leach into the food touching? Like, So can plastic just by touching leach into things?
0: Yes, and th- this is a, a good opportunity to talk about what we shouldn't do with with uh, food plastics. So under no circumstances should you microwave plastic or freeze it. That's also terrible. That breaks apart these plastics. So in general, the, the, the things that, that tend to break down.
1: Plastic
2: freezer bags like that you put in the freezer.
0: Don't do it. Don't do it. The things that tend to break down plastics are UV light, for one, in the environment. So that's why a bottle or bag will, over time, break down because the UV light bombards it and breaks apart the bonds within the plastic, and then it just splits into smaller pieces. Heating and freezing. Plastics are very tough by design, but heating and freezing, these temperature changes, do the same thing. They they break the, the plastic apart. And when that happens, it actually allows... These these bonds to come apart and leach out different chemicals in plastics. So when I mentioned that that study that linked phthalates and plastics to 100,000 early deaths in the United States each year, on a very conservative estimate, that might be from th- foods wrapped in plastic, or it might be from microplastics. There's no way of, of knowing at the moment that the study didn't look at that, but it, it might be a little bit of both. So you mentioned cucumbers, I lose my goddamn mind anytime I'm in a supermarket and I see a cucumber wrapped in single use plastic it's like are we not aware that cucumbers have their own skins that work perfectly fine and this is a this is a talking point in the plastics industry is that plastics are so useful because they keep our food fresher longer and and that means there's less plas- and that means there's less food waste in the United States which is I think the numbers on actual food waste in the United States would say otherwise that also doesn't take into account the fact that in the United States, we recycle about 5% of plastic, which is crazy. Historically, about 10% of plastics ever produced have been recycled. The rest have been thrown into landfills or burned or just chucked into the environment. So when we produce this plastic, we don't recycling in the United States. We actually ship it across oceans to developing countries. Until recently, China was taking a lot of this stuff, but a couple of years ago said, no, we're not doing that anymore. So it's, it's now flowing into other countries that are openly burning it. So when, when you hear the plastics industry say, well, it cuts down on food waste. Well, we are then shipping that plastic across oceans that it comes with a tremendous amount of carbon emissions involved where it's then burned and sent into the atmosphere. It doesn't seem particularly efficient to me. But anyway, coming back to the, the what we can do with with plastics is just don't don't use them as much as possible. Under no circumstances should you prepare baby formula in plastic, warm baby formula. So when I mentioned earlier that we we're finding a lot of microplastics in, in infant feces. That is probably in large part because when you prepare infant formula in hot, a hot formula in a plastic bottle, it breaks apart that plastic. And there was a study, the super alarming study that came out a couple years ago that showed that you know a baby might be drinking a million particles of plastic a day through this formula if you're preparing it in plastic. So prepare it when you can in glass. Just generally buy more glass, put more things in metal. You had mentioned BPA earlier. There was this big movement to get rid of BPA, which is an endocrine disrupting chemical, very terrible for human health. All well and good, except there have been a couple of studies that found that things labeled BPA free in fact have BPA in them. Because there's just like there's no there's basically no regulatory framework here in the United States. The other issue is that as we find these chemicals that are known to be bad for human health, the industry just replaces them with chemicals that are very similar in structure. Because you have to make a plastic a plastic. It can't just be pure carbon, as nice as that would be, because carbon is carbon. It would just melt into the environment no problem but it has all these additional chemicals beyond BPA we have to be very careful about what we let the industry substitute in as we phase these chemicals out because it could just be something that is just as toxic if not more toxic in the case of BPA so yes no food in contact with plastic if if at all possible but that's this is where i really struggle is that we don't have choice here so you have a hard time going to a supermarket and finding things that are not wrapped in single-use plastic. I have the liberty of having a farmer's market here. I get to take a canvas bag and just put things directly in it. That is very lucky for me. That is not the case in a wide for a wide array of Americans who may live in a food desert where you only have access to a convenience store for food and more things are wrapped in single use plastic there. So there's this equity side of this as well that is just now coming into view. There's a couple of researchers looking into are disadvantaged people in contact with more plastic and and therefore are they exposed to more poisons within them. But yes, I I like to say don't have food in contact with plastic. It's basically impossible to do right now, which is why we need systemic change. It's super great that individuals use reusable metal bottles. That's fantastic for your health. And in the, the long term, if we get that sort of support swelling for that, we can phase out more plastic bottles, that sort of thing. But it's going to require this huge movement because the plastics industry will have nothing more than to keep producing more and more plastic, again, three times as much by 2050 and flooding the planet and our bodies with these little tiny particles.
2: When the plastics are burned and go up into the atmosphere, is that ash still plastic?
0: Yes. So it will, it's, it's it's extra bad. So it will burn and it'll break into smaller pieces and it will go up as ash. But in that ash is is, it's basically microplastic ash and maybe some larger pieces of plastic because the thing of fires is that that warm air rises and propels all that particulate matter into the atmosphere but you're also releasing just straight up chemicals when you do that beyond beyond the microplastics and there have been a number of reports in these developing countries that are that are openly burning this stuff of terrible health problems for people living around this stuff because this this plastic is a is a it, long, it was long-pitched as benign material. Oh, it's very safe. It makes actually things safer. It makes our food safer.
1: Like it's so inert.
0: It's so, in, oh, it's so inert. And don't even worry about it. It's not going to be an issue. But these people have terrible human health effects because they're breathing burnt plastic. But then that is also sending the material up into the atmosphere. Again, propelling it because it's this warm air rising. It's, again, a consequence of the United States and other developed countries shipping the stuff that they can't profitably recycle. I will emphasize profitably because it's, that's been the issue is that it's just not profitable to recycle. So we just don't bother. That's a perverse system in the United States of capitalism, which is we're totally fine profiting by making all this stuff, all this plastic, but totally uninterested in actually taking care of it and keeping it from getting into the Environment Because once the plastic industry makes it, it could just wipe its hands and and walk away and then blame us as consumers that we're not recycling enough so recycling needs to to be fixed, but it also cannot be a crutch that we that we stand on because at the end of the day we just need to stop producing so much plastic
2: I actually am serious like could we gather the plastic and launch it into space like is that actually an, an option because space is so big would it hurt anything
0: there's a a two fold issue, I think, which is people talking about this with like spent nuclear material. Like, let's just get it off of Earth. Well, if you fire that rocket and it explodes and you then poison the entire planet with radioactive material, the same could be said for plastic. The, The bigger issue is it's just so expensive to launch a rocket. And you can't, like when you think about plastic, it's not a, it's a very undense material. So there's only so much you can get into plastic or into a rocket. I would love for that to be just fire a bunch of rockets into the sun. It'd be cool to watch. Unfortunately, not feasible. Okay.
2: I'm just envisioning like some like ever like flowing thing that just keeps it projecting up again. I, I realize that's kind of like trying to throw our problems somewhere else, but space is big.
0: The just like, just because we're thinking of it shows what a crazy problem this is that we are up against an industry that is going to keep producing more and more plastic and we know for sure that too much of the stuff is escaping into the environment we know for sure that there are increasing bodies of evidence showing that this is bad for human health because like the the very fact that we're sitting here thinking about this shows that this is a just a very daunting problem. It's very easy to get dejected about it, but that's that's also what the plastics industry wants us to feel. It's the same thing with climate change. They want us to feel dejected and hopeless because that's going to keep us from taking action on climate change to reduce our emissions. They want us to feel bad about flying, right? Like, because you you flew across the country, uh, you made climate change worse. No, it's it's that's a drop in the bucket as far as emissions concerned. It's because we have this economy that is built on burning carbon that is the issue we need to get away from that in the same way we need to stop producing so much plastic we need to reduce our reliance because we cannot let the industry again make this our fault because it it is it never was we never asked for our cucumbers to be wrapped in single-use plastic at least i didn't and you probably didn't either and i think this is where the movement is going to be is in increasing realization of just how absurd this has become, wrapping vegetables in in single-use plastic, that sort of thing. So maybe that's where we see movement, and maybe that's where we see that we start electing politicians that take this seriously and realize that climate change and plastics are two sides to the same coin. It's fossil fuels. It's it's one and the same. And again, as the industry starts to pivot away from fossil fuels, as we switch to more wind and solar panels, as we switch to more wind and solar power, they're going to put much more investment in plastics. This is their strategy. It's not a secret. It's just not very well publicized um, because I don't think a lot of people realize that plastics were fossil fuels. So that's that's what we're up against. But I, I do have hope that we can elect people that actually take this seriously and try to wrestle the influence uh, of, <laughs> of the, the fossil fuel industry away from politics, hopefully, ideally. I don't know.
2: And what's also super interesting and also disheartening, but it was actually, there was one time I laughed when I read your book, but it wasn't, it wasn't a happy laugh. It was a, I'll just, (laughs) I was like, it was an ironic laugh when you talked about the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, which if listeners like Google that is just shocking to look at, but the attempted cleanup effort, which was, I mean, great that they were attempting it, but. It was such an epic fail. The one that at least what you talked about in the book with the thing that they built to go what was it? Like something that was gonna go clean it up and then it, it broke and was made of plastic.
0: Yeah. So this is this is the the fundamental issue with mitigating the problem. So they sent out this big plastic catcher. It's a giant tube that plastic floats into in the in the Great Pacific garbage batch. You send out a boat to accumulate all that plastic, bring it back on shore, which is like all right, good luck, even if that works. The first one that they sent out split in half (laughs) uh, because I think the uh, open ocean is going to have other ideas about trying to engineer a massive plastic tube to produce plastic, which then ironically breaks into plastic pollution itself and they have to tow it to Hawaii for repairs. This is something that microplastic scientists talk about a lot, which is that that is way too far downstream we need to get way more upstream when it comes to mitigation so by that i mean that the farthest upstream we can go is to stop producing so much plastic again i hate to keep harping on it but that is how we fix this problem going farther downstream what you can actually do in the human in your home is to buy a microplastic filter, microfiber filter for your washing machine. So aftermarket thing, you slap it on. I have one. It works pretty well, I think. And that keeps some of the microfibers from your clothing from washing out to a wastewater treatment facility. The issue there is that we need to first somehow dispose of those microfibers in a a good way. Like if you throw it in the trash can and the trash is then exposed to open air and those fibers take the air anyway, it didn't do you much good. So that'll be, I think, worked out in the coming years as we also tried to put just more of those fiber filters standard into washing machines. France is actually the first to mandate this. By 2025, all washing machines in France have to have these filters. So that's a little farther downstream, still good. Rain gardens, as as I mentioned before, are a little bit farther downstream. That is closer to the ocean, but still keeps those... Those particles from getting out there. The other one I, I mentioned in the book is my favorite technology of all time. Mr. Trash Wheel, which is a, a barge in Baltimore Harbor. It is a giant barge with giant googly eyes that eats trash floating down the river, it collects all of it into a barge. And then they take that waste and, and recycle it. That keeps, that's like at the very last stop before the open ocean to catch that plastic before it gets out there again macro plastic like bottles and bags are just pre microplastics because they're going to break down once they're out there so there's up and down this stream that we can move the farthest downstream you could possibly go is to try to get the stuff out in the open ocean but farthest upstream we can go is to just not produce the plastic and then we'll have to worry about it escaping into the environment so that's that's when when Microplastics researchers talk about this. They say, first of all, the plastic catch on the ocean is not going to capture microplastics in any way. But also, it's kind of a boondoggle. Like, on a wide scale, it's going to be very difficult to make work.
1: Are you a Star Trek fan by chance?
0: You know what? I'm going to embarrass myself and say that I have not seen much Star Trek.
2: Okay, never mind. This reference won't make any sense. There's an episode called The Doomsday Machine where it's this thing that just goes around... For listeners who know Star Trek, that's what I keep thinking of with these things going into the Great Pacific garbage patch or this trash wheel. So the microplastic or microfiber filter, is that different than the lint catcher in your washing machine?
0: It is. And that's the frustrating thing is that other countries actually have microfiber filters just kind of standard in their washing machines to keep that what will become lint in a dryer because they use more line drying. They don't have dryers, so.
2: Oh right, okay. (laughs) I'm like looping it all together in my head. Never mind.
0: No, I mean it's it's a a good question. So it's we need we need them on both, right? So that's a weird thing when you think about the next time you you dry your clothes and you clean out that lint filter. If you know two thirds of your clothing is made out of plastic, that's concentrated microplastic, and that's actually the stuff that then gets spread onto fields, right? So like that would normally go to wastewater treatment facility, that's the stuff that's coming out of your washing machine. So, so we need it on bus. We need keep the lint filters for sure, but we need safer ways to actually dispose of it because when you're pulling it out of the washing machine, that stuff is taking to your indoor air. Excuse me, when you're pulling out your dryer, that stuff is taking to indoor air, but we need them on on washing machines as well. And uh, we need to mandate actually that that manufacturers start putting them on like France has started to do otherwise we're kind of left to our own devices getting these aftermarket filters which which are not too expensive you can get one for like 50 bucks but it's again it's not our responsibility i I want to keep coming back to this is i don't want to make people feel bad about their contribution to microplastic pollution because this is a, a plastic industry problem not a consumer problem
2: is it something that anybody can outfit their washing machine with they can order this filter
0: yeah, it should be. There's a, there's a couple of companies that do it. You, My dad is more handy. He installed it for me. It, it attaches to the hoses that go in and out of the machine. I guess it attaches to the one that goes out of the machine. The water passes through it. And then mine, mine is a removable filter that you actually send back to the company. And they will actually turn that into home insulation. So you're locking it. You're trying to lock away the microplastic for as, as long as possible to keep it from getting to the environment.
2: Very cool. Maybe I'll look up some resources and put a link in the show notes to that. So it was so interesting reading about the clothing and the washing and all the things. And it made me do one change that I knew I should have done already. But I read your book and I was like, oh, okay, I can't not do this anymore. I was using the, like the single-use, you know, like the pods that you throw in into the washing machine. Those are wrapped in some sort of plastic, I think. I mean, it's supposed to degrade and or, you know, it breaks down in the water. But that's... <laughs> even worse
0: It, it breaks into microplastics like when people say that this plastic is biodegradable what they're not telling you is that it is still plastic out there like it's just deconstructed right it's like it's the same plastic it's just in millions of parts
2: wow okay yeah so that change and then on the one hand i felt better about my clothing habits because i tend to wear i have like four outfits they're The exact same thing, and I wear them every single day (laughs) because of decision fatigue. Like, I don't, I just want to wear the same thing every day. I don't want to think about what I'm putting on, which I always thought I was really crazy. But then I realized that, like, that's what Steve Jobs did and like Barack Obama. So (laughs) maybe I'm not crazy. So that made me feel better because you were talking about how something that we can do is, you know, buy good clothing and wear it a long time. And, but then on the other hand, when I'm going out, I like to always wear a new dress. So I probably offset my <laughs> my um daily habits that way.
0: I mean, you're you're right. You're right, though. I think that that's a it's a great strategy. I talk in the book about a number of studies that actually agree on this: that the more you wash a garment, the the less microfibers it actually expels. So uh, when the first couple washes, probably a lot of the microfibers from the manufacturing process are just kind of getting jostled loose and washed out in the the washing machine wastewater but over time it actually produces less and less microplastic and if it's a high quality garment that lasts you for years and if it's not breaking apart like if you have something from fast fashion and you notice that it's breaking apart after a month it's breaking into microplastics that are then flushing out to a wastewater treatment facility so you're right it's it's good to wear the same stuff or whenever i do the same thing i'm i'm fine with it i think we should we should start a movement i don't know
2: it's funny, I feel embarrassed because there are a few things that I do every single day. Like I go to cryotherapy. I'm like, they <laughs> probably think I'm so weird that I wear the exact same thing in every single day, but it makes my life easier. And so uh, another question about the BPA, I'm fascinated by BPA because especially reading your book, I was already curious or skeptical about this, but then reading your book, I became even more so. You talk about all of these potential compounds and chemicals and plastics. So BPA, why did we focus on BPA? Is it really like the one thing or is it just so happens that for whatever reason, BPA is what they focused on? And you mentioned earlier, like the alternatives, like, you know, BPA free might still have like BPF or BPS and those haven't been studied as much. So is it possible that bpa-free is worse than bpa
0: it's possible and it's, it's actually quite a concern among scientists is that we started in plastics with bpa with that that was linked to a number of human health problems which pressured the industry to start phasing it out but as you mentioned you we might be phasing in these alternatives because you still gonna need to make a plastic a plastic bpa served a very good purpose right so like they need to substitute something in and we don't really have good data on okay well is that chemical because it's so much structure just as bad if not worse for human health in the United States there's just no very almost no regulation around this sort of stuff and this is certainly what we need more of and I think BPA is is one of these EDCs uh, you know a number of different chemicals that have effects on the endocrine system and we are now in this situation where we have to start picking through all of these and plastics and doing more studies on on what they do for human health. But there are a number already that are linking them to health problems. And the and the kind of scary thing the way that EDCs work is that they're Dosing doesn't work like a, a typical poison would. So you you think of something like aspirin. If you take enough of it, it's a it's a poison. There's this, if you pull out on a graph, there's this line that just goes up and up and up. ECs work differently, where it's a more of like a, a U shape. So even at very, very low concentrations, you can get a, a severe effect. And then moving right on the graph, it actually goes down kind of that middle sort of dosage but then comes back up again at very high doses so the concern with microplastics is that maybe even on these very small scales getting into our lungs and our digestive systems that the, the edcs could have an effect there but there's just we're at the very very beginning of understanding the human health effects of of microplastics i a quote a scientist in the book who says that We don't know about 99% of it. We have 1%, and that's a start, but it's going to take much more research to figure out what these different chemicals are doing to human health.
2: The U-shaped toxicity curve is so even more concerning because, you know, you would like to think that the dose is in the poison, so you require more for it to be toxic. But basically, you know, different exposures might have just as much of an issue, which is crazy. Another question about the biodegradable So, when things are labeled as being biodegradable, so that does not mean it's plastic-free, to clarify. That could just mean that it breaks down faster.
0: Yeah, the, the terminology here gets tricky. So, biodegradable basically means that it's going to break down faster, The issue with biodegradable, so I think a lot of people think about compost bags as biodegradable, and they are to a certain extent, they're still plastic, to a certain extent, in that they are meant to degrade under a certain set of conditions. And that is in these industrial composting facilities at very high consistent temperatures coming back this idea that heat is one of the things that breaks down plastics that compost bag is still plastic (laughs) and then the issue becomes that that's mixed in a lot of times with the compost and then spread on crops so we're getting microplastics from compost bags on our crops in addition to the microfibers and sludge from our clothing that's that's the problem with, with composting. The other issue is that if that compost bag is in some other environment that is not an industrial composting facility with consistently high temperatures, it does not break down. There was a, a good study that, that actually did this over time, like putting bags in soil and in, in ocean water and showing that sometimes after years they would be intact enough to still carry stuff in. Biodegradable is, is, is not a regulated term that is also different from Bio-based, so it's a little little tricky. So bio-based means you're getting the carbon chains in the plastic from plants, so sugar cane or corn, instead of from fossil fuels. Unfortunately, you still have to have all of those chemicals that make plastic a plastic mixed in with them. You're just getting a carbon from a different source. So that's a little bit of difference between bio-based and biodegradable. It's all it's all messy. It's all it's it's a wild west of terminology and regulation just think of when you're using a plastic at some point it's just going to break down into microplastics regardless where it does so is, is an open question because the the chain of of possession here when it comes to taking care of plastic waste is is very unclear
2: hi friends okay so I'm a little bit embarrassed because I've been talking for so long about red light and near infrared therapy, which is so, so important. However, I kind of left out something really important about light. So as you guys know, I've been talking about red light and near infrared for so long. And at the same time during the day, I was using a bright sad light. So it's those white lights that help with waking you up, help with your circadian rhythm. They're used to combat mood issues and depression. So I have a really bright white one of those at my desk. A few things about that. I knew it helped wake me up and kept me stimulated, but I wasn't sure if it had any detrimental effects using it. And then two, I was also wondering if by just focusing on red and near red light, was I somehow missing something in the full spectrum of light? Guess what? I was. And guess what? I found the solution and guess what? I have a discount for you guys. So the founder of a company called Soulshine reached out to me and he was like, do you know about the importance of full spectrum light? And I was like, you know what? I've been wondering about this for quite a while. Please educate me. Oh my goodness, this man blew my mind. I talk a lot about the problems of blue light. That said, we evolved in natural full spectrum sunlight that our genes are programmed to respond to. And today we do not spend enough time in that light A lot of us don't go outside and we're overexposed to blue light. It's a problem. And then to make things even more problematic, the common sad lights that I was talking about that are bright white, they actually do not contain the full spectrum light. They filter out certain wavelengths and they're high in blue light. So just like I thought it was not doing my health perfect timing so this week literally this week i got approached by a brand to partner with for the show and i'm vetting them right now and so i'm looking at their website i'm not going to say what the brand is because i'm not sure if i'm going to partner with them or not this is like a good example where i can't tell like reading the information if it's great or if it's not great can i read you (laughs) can i read you some of what they say and you can let me know what this is saying sure so what they make is they make like, it's like compostable bags. So like grocery bags, storage bags, like for food and your freezer, like gallon bags. Yeah. And then mostly, but their main thing is trash bags. So they say we use non-toxic ingredients like PBAT, PLA, and cornstarch to produce our strong and sustainable material. Our plant-based renewables come from the earth and degrade cleanly back into the earth without producing microplastics or toxic residue. And then for the breakdown, they say that, so PBAT is a biodegradable polymer that requires less crude oil during production than plastics and breaks down quickly without emitting methane gas or creating toxic residues. And then they say that PLA is a monomer derived from organic renewable sources like sugar or corn, it requires less energy in production and emits less greenhouse gas and decomposition than plastic. And then they say cornstarch is an organic substance that is ethically harvested from corn and biodegrades quickly without toxic gas. And then they say that they use responsible packaging, minimal recyclable packaging made with 100% FSC, which I don't even, I don't know what that is, certified material from responsible sources in an effort to reduce waste. So that type of stuff. It's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to like comment in detail on everything, but so is that like where you're talking about with the bio-based Stuff rather than biodegradable.
0: If they're using PLA, they're talking about bio-based. So using, they're making their 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 chains of carbon out of plastic instead of fossil fuels. So it, that's like I get I get pitched on this sort of thing all the time as as a science journalist about these alternatives, and I'm just I'm with anything. I'm I'm very curious about the scientific rigor behind any claim, right? So like when you say it's non-toxic, well, non-toxic to what, right? Like if it's a microplastic breaking down in the environment, is it toxic to other things? I mean, I, I never cover these things because at the end of the day, I, I harp on, we just need to use less plastic at the end of the day. Al- alternatives are, are going to help, but we need to be very careful that we are not producing things that are just as harmful as plastic. These things I would love to see scientific rigor behind what they're claiming here. But yes, so that is that, that is sounding like a bio-based plastic instead of a fossil fuel-based one.
2: Cuz I'm wondering so like have you heard before of polybutylene adipate terephthalate PBAT? It has word phthalate in it.
0: Yeah, I've heard of terephthalate. I hadn't heard of that that other one. The the so this is actually the kind of fascinating thing about plastics is there are so many different varieties. So from that original synthetic billiard ball, it has diversified into this whole range of of different plastics, which has made actually figuring out a lot of things in microplastic science quite different, difficult, because you, you know one variety of plastic might break down differently under UV bombardment. A bio based plastic might break down differently than a fossil fuel based one this this is the this is the issues that as we are transitioning perhaps away from plastics and looking for alternatives that are non-toxic and are not based on fossil fuels we need to apply scientific rigor to what all that that actually means in practice so i'm hopeful to a certain degree that there are going to be alternatives coming out in the years to come, but we cannot lose sight of the fact that we just need to use less plastic in general across the board, period. Like at the end of the day, that's it. That's how we fix this problem.
2: So, yeah, cause I'm just thinking about this even more and more. Like I would look more into this PBAT cause they say it's an alternative to plastics, which makes it sound like it's not a plastic, but like, so this is something where, cause you're talking about just reducing our use of this in general, but something like trash bags. Like we all need trash bags. So I guess we need something that is a non-plastic trash bag, right? Like, or is there another alternative that doesn't even require that?
0: Yeah. I mean, <laughs> trash bags are, are quite useful, but not necessarily always necessary. I, I think recycling is probably easier. Like you don't need to necessarily put all your recycling in in a plastic bag before you put it on the curb because it's not really dirty. There's not like food stuffs on it if you wash it that sort of thing it's just i think being more mindful really to begin with so thinking about you know, all the ways that we are using plastics in our daily lives which was never our intention i, I want to come back to this we never asked for this much plastic but little by little picking out things that we know that we can reduce our reliance on, on plastic with switch again switching to, to glass and, and metal which is reusable so long as you don't break your glass <laughs> reusable over and over again and you know is not as problematic as as plastics are. So yes, new materials are going to be, I think, good going forward. But really to start with right now, at, at this very moment, we can all take an inventory in our daily lives of ways that we can we can cut out plastics entirely.
2: I launched a supplement line and I did it in glass bottles, which is really rare in the supplement industry. Like most of them are in plastic bottles, but I read your book and I was like, I called my part, my business partner. And I was like, we have to change the cap. Cause it still has a plastic cap. (laughs) I was like, we got to find an alternative here. I'm part of the problem. So in your daily life, what are some of the the main things that you do daily to you know, address this to use trash bags
0: for, for trash. I try to use uh, as, as best as you can try like paper bags as best, but it's, it's like, this is, this is why I think there will be uses going forward for different formulations of, of things that are, that act like plastics that are, that are waterproof and are just convenient in that way. Cause it, and I talk about this in the book, that plastic is a, it's a wonder material. It has been, so extremely useful in a broad range of uses like i'm not uh, sitting here arguing that we should not use plastic in like medical devices um that that sort of thing they they will serve a purpose for certain things going forward but just like taking a look around us and realizing that there are ways to cut out plastics i again get I have the the privilege of going to a farmers market where I can just put things in a canvas bag. I do the same thing when I have to go to the grocery store, but just avoiding plastic is essentially impossible. Like it's hard to get out of that place without buying at least one thing that is that is in plastic. So we need we need alternatives. We need choice as consumers. Like that's I was under the understanding that capitalism was all about choice uh, in fact too much choice and we don't need twenty kinds of toothpaste at the the drugstore that I think a couple will do just fine but when it comes to plastics we have no choice there are not really alternatives except like like niche products there, there's a couple of I've seen for toothpaste, it's like a chewable thing that isn't wrapped in single-use plastic. I'm big on refillable centers. So buying shampoo in, in bulk, like you'd have your own glass jar. You go to a local store. There's a couple here in, in the Bay Area. But that's that's a privilege. Again, and, and I want to come back to this equity aspect that a lot of people do not have privilege of avoiding plastic. If you live in a food desert, you only have access to stuff that is wrapped in single-use plastic. You have zero choice about your exposure to plastic. I live in a very privileged position where I get to go to a farmer's market every Sunday. So if capitalism is all it's cracked up to be, where's the choice here, right? Where, As consumers, why can't we choose not to use so much plastic day after day?
2: One sort of, like, esoteric question does possibly end on, could it have been any other way? Like, if we could go back and know what we know now, what would that have looked like? Like, we would have just produced plastic for, you know, the necessary things and and started with alternatives from the beginning. I'm just wondering if it could have been any other way for, like, the progress of humanity. (laughs) You talk about, like, the progress trap.
0: I mean, yeah, so I, I keep thinking about, I'm 38, and I grew up in the 80s. And I remember a time where we just had much less single-use plastic. Stuff wasn't wrapped in plastic as much as it is today. It was not that long ago in human history where we had access to plenty of, of plastics that we got along just fine without them infiltrating every aspect of our daily lives. Again, I'm not saying that we should not use them for very useful things like airplanes. You know, Interiors of airplanes, would not they would not be able to fly if, if they weren't made out of I'm not saying get rid of that. I'm saying that it could have been that after World War II, as we started producing more and more plastics, we could have been much smarter about the uses had we known about the awful effects that plastics would be having as production grew more and more out of control. So that's both the contamination in the environment of macroplastic and microplastics. And now, as we're seeing human exposure to microplastics. There's one researcher I talked to in the book that that reckons that we inhale 7,000 microplastics a day. When plastics were first being produced on a wide scale in the 40s and 50s, I don't think anybody thought that that was going to be an issue. We didn't think that was an issue until very recently in human and scientific history. and And I think... We have, as you mentioned in the book, we have this opportunity to to tear ourselves free from this this plastic trap. It seems that we are stuck with this material because it is absolutely everywhere. But we can also look back in very recent human history, where we had this material, but didn't have it in so many places and in so many ridiculous forms. Single-use plastic is an insane concept and companies did it because it was profitable this this was a market based thing it 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 made it so it was cheaper to ship soda right and instead of in a glass bottle which is heavier it's just harder to do that plastics was a much cheaper way to do so this is a product of capitalism and it's going to re- it's going to take a concerted effort on the part of the people and then politicians to rein in these truly sociopathic corporations that have flooded the planet with this this material with no consequence. We just had not held them to account. And it could have gone a very different way where we were thinking decades past that, oh, this is getting a little crazy, a little ridiculous that we're producing so much of this this stuff for ridiculous purposes, maybe let's pump the brakes. We have that opportunity. And in fact, that opportunity is extremely urgent because production is going to triple in the next 30 years. That's that's the insanity of this, is that you thought it was bad now, just wait. five years, 10 years, it's going to be much, much worse unless we actually get together and hold these companies to account.
2: Well, thank you so much. Is there anything else about all of this that you think is important for listeners to know?
0: One thing I think that would be interesting to add about kind of the climate implications here is that scientists are just beginning to explore what these particles might do to the environment carbon wise. So if they're up in the atmosphere in very high concentrations, are they absorbing some of the sun's energy? Well, they're up there. Plastics are often made out of these. You know, dark colors that could more readily absorb the sun's energy in the atmosphere, thus heating the atmosphere. Are they acting as nuclei for clouds? So clouds form around little bits of dust or even bacteria, that sort of thing, that act as nuclei. You get water glomming onto that. Are microplastics doing the same? Are they changing the way that clouds are forming? There is additional research that is showing that microplastics release Lots of methane, in particular, as they break down in the environment. So, coming back to this idea, this is carbon. This is carbon from fossil fuels as it breaks down in the environment. Where do you think that carbon goes? It often comes off as a gas that then adds to the burden of carbon in the atmosphere. And that's that's why this is this is such a urgent issue. Is that we can't let the fossil fuel industry. Wind down the burning of fossil fuels as we switch to renewables and wind up the production of plastics, which is just carbon in a different form. We're going to see a lot more emissions, both from the production of that plastic as we triple production by 2050, but also what's already out there is off gassing that carbon into the atmosphere. So that's just an additional climate side of things that I think we'll see more research on going forward.
2: I like how one thing you pointed out in the book was. The question of, you know, why focus on plastics when there's all of the climate change and climate issues, but you, you know, talk about how they're all like overwhelmingly interconnected. So helping one helps the other, presumably. Well, thank you so much. Like I said, your book had a profound impact. It gave me, I see the world differently now. Like, honestly, I literally do. That's great. So I, I can't thank you enough.
0: I mean, that's not, that's not great, but...
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's it's insane. What are you working on now? Do you have any other future books?
0: Oh, man, I'm taking a breather from this. this. This one took a lot out of me. I don't know what's coming next, but I think just some time off from writing books for the moment. We'll see.
2: Nice. Well, how can people best follow your work on Wired and social media, all the things?
0: Yeah, you could just, I don't use Twitter much, even before the recent chaos, but you can find my, my wired author page just by Googling my name and, and wired. I will be there producing content. But, but otherwise, if, if folks have questions, feel free to reach out. I think my email, my, my wired email is on my, my Twitter page. So happy to answer questions.
1: Well, we will put
2: links to all of that in the show notes and the last question that I ask every single guest on this show and it's just because I realize more and more each day how important mindset is.
1: So, what is something that you're grateful for?
0: I'm grateful for, you know, all of these scientists coming together from different fields to look at not only the consequences for ecosystems but more and more to really rush, not rush in the sense that they're not doing good science, but to do very solid science as quickly as possible to figure out the human health effects of microplastics because they they could be severe and we need to know as soon as as possible. So I'm I'm grateful to those people doing that hard work and not necessarily uplifting work, but so it goes.
1: Well,
2: thank you so much. I am so grateful for the work you are doing because- it was, like I said, so eye-opening and a a very interesting and accessible read. And so I think it's going to really help a lot of people have a paradigm shift that I think is really, really needed. So you're doing great things that are having actual effects on the world. So thank you. So yeah, so thank you so much for your time. This was amazing. If you do ever write another book again in the future, love to have you back on. And yeah, thanks so much for all that you're doing.
0: And thank you very much. I appreciate the interest in the book.
2: Have a good day.
1: Thanks, Matt. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What When Wine? Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember... You got this.